0: CHAPTER Six, SECTION 1 OF THE NEW Machiavelli by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. MARGARET IN LONDON 1. I was 27 when I met Margaret again, and the intervening five years have been years of vigorous activity for me, if not a very remarkable growth. When I saw her again, I could count myself a grown man. I think, indeed, I counted myself more completely grown than I was. At any rate, by all ordinary standards, I had got on very well, and my ideas, if they had not changed very greatly, had become much more definite, and my ambitions clearer and bolder. I had long since abandoned my fellowship and come to London, I had published two books that had been talked about, written several articles, and established a regular relationship with the Weekly Review and the Evening Gazette. I was a member of the Eighty Club and learning to adapt the style of the Cambridge Union to larger uses. The London world had opened out to me very readily. I had developed a pleasant variety of social connections. I had made the acquaintance of Mr Evesham, who had been attracted by my new ruler and who talked about it and me and so did a very great deal to make a way for me into the company of prominent and amusing people i dined out quite frequently the glitter and interest of good london dinner parties became a common experience i liked the sort of conversation one got at them extremely the little glow of duologues burning up into more general discussions the closing in of the men after the going of the women the sage substantial masculine gossiping the later resumption of effective talk with some pleasant woman graciously at her best i had a wide range of houses cambridge had linked me to one or two correlated sets of artistic and literary people and my books and mr evesham had opened to me the big vague world of society i wasn't aggressive nor particularly snobbish nor troublesome sometimes i talked well and if i had nothing interesting to say i said as little as possible and i had a youthful gravity of manner that was liked by hostesses and the other side of my nature that first flared through the cover of restraints at locarno that too had had opportunity to develop along the line london renders practicable i had had my experiences and secrets and adventures among that fringe of ill-mated or erratic or discredited women the london world possesses the thing had long ago ceased to be a matter of magic or mystery and had become a question of appetites and excitement and among other things the excitement of not being found out i write rather doubtfully of my growing during this period indeed i find it hard to judge whether i can say that i grew at all in any real sense of the word between three and twenty and twenty-seven it seems to me now to have been rather a phase of realisation and clarification all the broad lines of my thought were laid down i am sure by the date of my lucarno adventure but in those five years i discussed things over and over again with myself and others filled out with concrete fact forms i had at first apprehended sketchily and conversationally measured my powers against my ideals and the forces in the world about me it was evident that many men no better than myself and with no greater advantages than mine had raised themselves to influential and even decisive positions in the worlds of politics and thought I was gathering the confidence and knowledge necessary to attack the world in the large manner. I found I could write, and that people would let me write if I chose, as one having authority and not as the scribes. Socially and politically and intellectually, I knew myself an honest man, and that quite, without any deliberation on my part, this showed and made things easy for me. People trusted my good faith from the beginning, for all that I came from nowhere, and had no better position than any adventurer. But the growth process was arrested. I was nothing bigger at twenty-seven than at twenty-two, however much saner and stronger, and any one looking closely into my mind during that period might well have imagined growth finished altogether. It is particularly evident to me now that I came no nearer to any understanding of women during that time. That Locarno affair was infinitely more to me than I had supposed. It ended something, nipped something in the bud, perhaps, took me at a stride from a vague, fine, ignorant, closed world of emotion to intrigue and a perfectly definite and limited sensuality. It ended my youth, and for a time it prevented my manhood. I had never yet even peeped at the sweetest, profoundest thing in the world, the heart and meaning of a girl, or dreamt with any quality of reality of a wife, or any such thing as a friend among womanhood. My vague anticipation of such things in life had vanished altogether. I turned away from their possibility. It seemed to me I knew what had to be known about womankind. I wanted to work hard, to get on to a position in which I could develop and forward my constructive projects. Women, I thought, had nothing to do with that. It seemed clear I could not marry for some years. I was attractive to certain types of women, I had vanity enough to give me an agreeable confidence in love-making, and I went about seeking a convenient mistress quite deliberately someone who should serve my purpose and say in the end, like that kindly first mistress of mine, I've done you no harm, and so release me. It seemed the only wise way of disposing of urgencies that might otherwise entangle and wreck the career I was intent upon. I don't apologise for or defend my mental and moral phases. So it was I appraised life and prepared to take it, and so it is a thousand ambitious men see it today. For the rest, these five years were a period of definition. My political conceptions were perfectly plain and honest. I had one constant desire ruling my thoughts. I meant to leave England and the empire better ordered than I found it, to organise and discipline, to build up a constructive and controlling state out of my world's confusions we had, I saw, to suffuse education with public intention, to develop a new, better living generation with a collectivist habit of thought, to link now chaotic activities in every human affair, and particularly to catch that escaped world-making, world-ruining, dangerous thing, industrial and financial enterprise, and bring it back to the service of the general good. I had then the precise image that still serves me as a symbol for all I wish to bring about, the image of an engineer building a lock in a swelling torrent, with water pressure as his only source of power. My thoughts and acts were habitually turned to that enterprise. It gave shape and direction to all my life. The problem that most engaged my mind during those years was the practical and personal problem of just where to apply myself to serve this almost innate purpose. How was I, a child of this confusion, struggling upward through the confusion, to take hold of things? Somewhere between politics and literature my grip must needs be found. But where? Always I seem to have been looking for that in those opening years, and disregarding everything else to discover it. 2. The Baileys, under whose auspices I met Margaret again, were in the sharpest contrast with the narrow industrialism of the Staffordshire world. They were indeed, at the other extreme of the scale, two active, self-centred people excessively devoted to the public service. It was natural i should gravitate to them for they seemed to stand for the maturer more disciplined better informed expression of all i was then urgent to attempt to do the bulk of their friends were politicians or public officials they described themselves as publicists a vague yet sufficiently significant term they lived and worked in a hard little house in chambers street westminster and made a centre for quite an astonishing amount of political and social activity willersley took me there one evening the place was almost pretentiously matter-of-fact and unassuming the narrow passage hall papered with some ancient yellowish paper grained to imitate wood was choked with hats and cloaks and an occasional feminine wrap motioned rather than announced by a tall scotch servant-woman the only domestic I ever remember seeing there, we made our way up a narrow staircase past the open door of a small study packed with blue books to discover Altiora Bailey receiving before the fireplace in her drawing-room. She was a tall commanding figure, splendid but a little untidy in black silk and red beads, with dark eyes that had no depths with a clear hard voice that had an almost visible prominence, aquiline features and straight black hair that was apt to get astray, that was now astray like the head feathers of an eagle in a gale. She stood with her hands behind her back and talked in a high tenor of a projected town planning bill with Blupp, who was practically in those days the secretary of the local government board. A very short, broad man, with thick ears and fat white hands writhing intertwined behind him, stood with his back to us, eager to bark interruptions into Altiora's discourse. A slender girl in pale blue, manifestly a young political wife, stood with one foot on the fender, listening with an expression of entirely puzzled propitiation a tall sandy-bearded bishop with the expression of a man in a trance completed this central group the room was one of those long apartments once divided by folding doors and reaching from back to front that are common upon the first floors of london houses its walls were hung with two or three indifferent watercolours there was scarcely any furniture but a sofa or so and a chair and the floor, severely carpeted with matting, was crowded with a curious medley of people, men predominating. Several were in evening dress, but most had the morning garb of the politician. The women were either severely rational or radiantly magnificent. Willersley pointed out to me the wife of the Secretary of State for War, and I recognised the Duchess of Clines, who at that time cultivated intellectuality. I looked round, identifying a face here or there, and stepping back trod on someone's toe and turned to find it belonged to the Right Honourable G. B. Mottisham, dear-to-the-punch caricaturists. He received my apology with that intentional charm that is one of his most delightful traits, and resumed his discussion. Beside him was Esmeer of Trinity, whom I had not seen since my Cambridge days.' "'Willersley found an ex-member of the school board for whom he had affinities, "'and left me to exchange experiences and comments upon the company with Esmeer. Esmere was still a don, but he was nibbling,' he said, "'at certain negotiations with the Times that might bring him down to London. "'He wanted to come to London. "'We peep at things from Cambridge,' he said. "'This sort of thing,' I said, "'makes London necessary. "'It's the oddest gathering.' "'Everyone comes here,' said Esmere. "'Mostly we hate them like poison, jealousy, and little irritations. altiora can be a horror at times, but we have to come. "'Things are being done. "'Oh, no doubt of it. "'It's one of the parts of the British machinery that doesn't show. "'But nobody else could do it.' Two people,' said Esmere, "'who've planned to be a power in an original way, "'and by Jove they've done it.' i did not for some time pick out oscar bailey and then esmere showed him to me in elaborately confidential talk in a corner with a distinguished-looking stranger wearing a ribbon oscar had none of the fine appearance of his wife he was a short sturdy figure with a rounded protruding abdomen and a curious broad flattened clean-shaven face that seemed nearly all forehead he was of anglo-hungarian extraction and i have always fancied something mongolian in his type he peered up with reddish swollen looking eyes over gilt-edged glasses that were divided horizontally into portions of different refractive power and he talked in an ingratiating undertone with busy thin lips an eager lisp and nervous movements of the hand People say that thirty years before at Oxford he was almost exactly the same eager, clever little man he was when I first met him. He had come up to Balliol bristling with extraordinary degrees and prizes captured in provincial and Irish and Scotch universities and had made a name for himself as the most formidable dealer in exact fact the rhetoricians of the Union had ever had to encounter. From Oxford he had gone on to a position in the higher division of the civil service, I think in the war office, and had speedily made a place for himself as a political journalist. He was a particularly neat controversialist and very full of political and sociological ideas. He had a quite astounding memory for facts and a mastery of detailed analysis and the time afforded scope for these gifts the later eighties were full of politico-social discussion and he became a prominent name upon the contents list of the nineteenth century the fortnightly and contemporary chiefly as a half sympathetic but frequently very damaging critic of the socialism of that period he won the immense respect of everyone specially interested in social and political questions he soon achieved the limited distinction that is awarded such capacity and at that I think he would have remained for the rest of his life if he had not encountered Altiora. But Altiora McVitie was an altogether exceptional woman, an extraordinary mixture of qualities, the one woman in the world who could make something more out of Bailey than that. She had much of the vigour and handsomeness of a slender, impudent young man, and an unscrupulousness altogether feminine. She was one of those women who are waiting in, what is the word, muliebrity. She had courage and initiative and a philosophical way of handling questions, and she could be bored by regular work like a man. She was entirely unfitted for her sex's sphere. She was neither uncertain, coy, nor hard to please, and altogether too stimulating and aggressive for any gentleman's hours of ease her cookery would have been about as sketchy as her handwriting which was generally quite illegible and she would have made i feel sure a shocking bad nurse yet you mustn't imagine she was an inelegant or unbeautiful woman and she is inconceivable to me in high collars or any sort of masculine garment but her soul was bony and at the base of her was a vanity gaunt and greedy when she wasn't in a state of personal untidiness that was partly a protest against the waste of hours exacted by the toilet and partly a natural disinclination, she had a gypsy splendour of black and red and silver all her own. And some when in the early nineties she met and married Bailey. I know very little about her early years. She was the only daughter of Sir Dayton McVitie who applied the iodoform process to cotton, and only his subsequent unfortunate attempts to become a cotton king prevented her being a very rich woman. As it was, she had a tolerable independence. She came into prominence as one of the more able of the little shoal of young women who were led into politico-philanthropic activities by the influence of the earlier novels of Mrs Humphrey Ward, the Marcella crop. She went slumming with distinguished figure, which was quite usual in those days, and returned from her experiences as an amateur flower girl with clear and original views about the problem, which is and always had been unusual. She had not married, I suppose because her standards were high and men are cowards, and with an instinctive appetite for muliebrity. She had kept house for her father by speaking occasionally to the housekeeper, butler and cook her mother had left her, and gathering the most interesting dinner parties she could, and had married off four orphan nieces in a harsh and successful manner. After her father's smash and death, she came out as a writer upon social questions, and a scathing critic of the Charity Organisation Society, and she was three and thirty and a little at loose ends when she met Oscar Bailey, so to speak, in the Contemporary Review. The lurking woman in her nature was fascinated by the ease and precision with which the little man rolled over all sorts of important and authoritative people. She was the first to discover a sort of imaginative bigness in his still-growing mind. The forehead, perhaps, carried him off physically, and she took occasion to meet and subjugate him and so soon as he had sufficiently recovered from his abject humility and a certain panic at her attentions marry him this had opened a new phase in the lives of bailey and herself the two supplemented each other to an extraordinary extent their subsequent career was i think almost entirely her invention she was aggressive imaginative and had a great capacity for ideas while he was almost destitute of initiative, and could do nothing with ideas except remember and discuss them. She was, if not exact, at least indolent, with a strong disposition to save energy by sketching. Even her handwriting showed that, while he was inexhaustibly industrious, with a relentless invariable calligraphy that grew larger and clearer as the years passed by. She had a considerable power of charming, she could be just as nice to people, and incidentally just as nasty, as she wanted to be. He was always just the same, a little confidential and sotto voce, artlessly rude and egoistic in an undignified way. She had considerable social experience, good social connections, and considerable social ambition, while he had none of these things. She saw in a flash her opportunity to redeem his defects, use his powers, and do large, novel, rather startling things. She ran him. Her marriage, which shocked her friends and relations beyond measure, for a time they would only speak of Bailey as that gnome, was a stroke of genius, and forthwith they proceeded to make themselves the most formidable and distinguished couple conceivable. PBP, she boasted, was engraved inside their wedding rings, pro bono publico, and she meant it to be no idle threat. She had discovered very early that the last thing influential people will do is to work. Everything in their lives tends to make them dependent upon a supply of confidently administered detail." their business is with the window and not the stock behind and in the end they are dependent upon the stock behind for what goes into the window she linked with that the fact that bailey had a mind as orderly as a museum and an invincible power over detail she saw that if two people took the necessary pains to know the facts of government and administration with precision to gather together knowledge that was dispersed and confused to be able to say precisely what had to be done and what avoided in this eventuality or that, they would necessarily become a centre of reference for all sorts of legislative proposals and political expedients, and she went unhesitatingly upon that. Bailey, under her vigorous direction, threw up his post in the civil service and abandoned sporadic controversies, and they devoted themselves to the elaboration and realisation of this centre of public information she had conceived as their role. They set out to study the methods and organisation and realities of government in the most elaborate manner. They did the work as no one had ever hitherto dreamt of doing it. They planned the research on a thoroughly satisfying scale and arranged their lives almost entirely for it. They took that house in Chambers Street and furnished it with severe economy. They discovered that Scotch domestic who is destined to be the guardian and tyrant of their declining years, and they set to work. Their first book, The Permanent Official, filled three plump volumes and took them and their two secretaries upwards of four years to do. It is an amazingly good book, an enduring achievement. In a hundred directions, the history and the administrative treatment of the public service was clarified for all time. They worked regularly every morning from nine to twelve. They lunched lightly but severely. In the afternoon they took exercise, or Bailey attended meetings of the London School Board, on which he served, he said, for the purposes of study. He also became a railway director for the same end. In the late afternoon Altiora was at home to various callers, and in the evening came dinner, or a reception, or both. Her dinners and gatherings were a very important feature in their scheme. She got together all sorts of interesting people in or about the public service. She mixed the obscurely efficient with the ill-instructed famous and the rudderless rich. "'got together in one room more of the factors "'in our strange jumble of a public life "'than had ever met easily before. "'She fed them with a shameless austerity "'that kept the conversation brilliant "'on a soup, a plain fish, and mutton or boiled fowl "'and milk pudding, with nothing to drink "'but whisky and soda and hot and cold water "'and milk and lemonade. "'Everybody was soon very glad indeed to come to that.' she boasted how little her housekeeping cost her and sought constantly for fresh economies that would enable her she said to sustain an additional private secretary secretaries were the baileys one extravagance they loved to think of searches going on in the british museum and letters being cleared up and pricey made overhead while they sat in the little study and worked together bailey with a clockwork industry and Altiora in splendid flashes between intervals of cigarettes and meditation. All efficient public careers, said Altiora, consist in the proper direction of secretaries. If everything goes well, I shall have another secretary next year, Altiora told me. I wish I could refuse people dinner napkins. Imagine what it means in washing. I dare most things, but as it is, they stand a lot of hardship here there's something of the miser in both these people said esmere and the thing was perfectly true for after all the miser is nothing more than a man who either through want of imagination or want of suggestion misapplies to a base use a natural power of concentration upon one end the concentration itself is neither good nor evil but a power that can be used in either way and the Baileys gathered and reinvested usuriously not money, but knowledge of the utmost value in human affairs. They produced an effect of having found themselves completely. One envied them at times extraordinarily. I was attracted, I was dazzled, and at the same time there was something about Bailey's big wrinkled forehead, his lisping broad mouth, the gestures of his hands, and an uncivil preoccupation, I could not endure. Three. Their effect upon me was from the outset very considerable. Both of them found occasion on that first visit of mine to talk to me about my published writings and particularly about my then just published book, The New Ruler, which had interested them very much. It fell in, indeed, so closely with their own way of thinking, that I doubt if they ever understood how independently I had arrived at my conclusions. It was their weakness to claim excessively. That irritation, however, came later. We discovered each other immensely. For a time it produced a tremendous sense of kindred and cooperation. Altiora, I remember, maintained that there existed a great army of such constructive-minded people as ourselves, as yet undiscovered by one another. "'It's like boring a tunnel through a mountain,' said Oscar, and presently hearing the tapping of the workers from the other end. "'If you didn't know of them beforehand,' I said, "'it might be a rather badly joined tunnel.' "'Exactly!' said Altiora with a high note, and that's why we all want to find out each other. They didn't talk like that on our first encounter, but they urged me to lunch with them next day, and then it was we went into things. A woman factory inspector and the educational minister for New Banksland and his wife were also there, but I don't remember they made any contribution to the conversation. The Baileys saw to that. "'They kept on at me in an urgent litigious way. "'We have read your book,' each began, "'as though it had been a joint function, "'and we consider.' "'Yes,' I protested. "'I think that was a secondary matter.' "'They did not consider,' said Altiora, "'raising her voice and going right over me, "'that I had allowed sufficiently "'for the inevitable development "'of an official administrative class "'in the modern state.' "'Nor of its importance,' echoed Oscar." that they explained in a sort of chorus was the cardinal idea of their lives what they were up to what they stood for we want to suggest to you they said and i found this was a stock opening of theirs that from the mere necessities of convenience elected bodies must avail themselves more and more of the services of expert officials we have that very much in mind the more complicated and technical affairs become, the less confidence will the elected official have in himself. We want to suggest that these expert officials must necessarily develop into a new class, and a very powerful class in the community. We want to organise that. It may be the power of the future. They will necessarily have to have very much of a common training we consider ourselves as amateur unpaid precursors of such a class the vision they displayed for my consideration as the aim of public-spirited endeavour seemed like a harder narrower more specialised version of the idea of a trained and disciplined state that willersley and i had worked out in the alps they wanted things more organised, more correlated with government, and a collective purpose, just as we did, but they saw it not in terms of a growing collective understanding, but in terms of functionaries, legislative change, and methods of administration. It wasn't clear at first how we differed. The Baileys were very anxious to win me to cooperation, and I was quite prepared at first to identify their distinctive expressions with phrases of my own, and so we came very readily into an alliance that was to last some years, and break at last very painfully. Altiora manifestly liked me. I was soon discussing with her the perplexity I found in placing myself efficiently in the world, the problem of how to take hold of things that occupied my thoughts, and she was sketching out careers for my consideration very much as an architect on his first visit sketches houses considers requirements and puts before you this example and that of the more or less similar thing already done Four. It is easy to see how much in common there was between the Baileys and me, and how natural it was that I should become a constant visitor at their house, and an ally of theirs in many enterprises. It is not nearly so easy to define the profound antagonism of spirit that also held between us. There was a difference in texture, a difference in quality. How can I express it? the shapes of our thoughts were the same but the substance quite different it was as if they had made in china or cast iron what i had made in transparent living matter the comparison is manifestly from my point of view certain things never seemed to show through their ideas that were visible refracted perhaps and distorted but visible always through mine I thought for a time the essential difference lay in our relation to beauty. With me, beauty is quite primary in life. I like truth, order and goodness, wholly because they are beautiful or lead straight to beautiful consequences. The Baileys either hadn't got that or they didn't see it. They seemed at times to prefer things harsh and ugly. That puzzled me extremely. The aesthetic quality of many of their proposals, the manners of their work, so to speak, were at times as dreadful as, well, war-office barrack architecture. A caricature by its exaggerated statements will sometimes serve to point a truth by antagonising falsity and falsity. I remember talking to a prominent museum official in need of more public funds for the work he had in hand. I mentioned the possibility of enlisting Bailey's influence. "'Oh, we don't want philistines like that infernal bottle-imp running us,' he said hastily, "'and would hear of no concerted action for the end he had in view. "'I'd rather not have the extension. "'You see,' he went on to explain, "'Bailey's wanting in the essentials.' "'What essentials?' said I. "'Oh, he'd be like a nasty, oily-efficient little machine "'for some merely subordinate necessity among all my delicate stuff.' He'd do all we wanted, no doubt, in the way of money and powers, and he'd do it wrong and mess the place forever. Hands all black, you know. He's just a means, just a very aggressive and unmanageable means. This isn't a plumber's job.' I stuck to my argument. "'I don't like him,' said the official conclusively, and it seemed to me at the time he was just blind prejudice speaking.' i came nearer the truth of the matter as i came to realise that our philosophies differed profoundly that isn't a very curable difference once people have grown up theirs was a philosophy devoid of finesse temperamentally the baileys were specialised concentrated accurate while i emerged either by some inner force or some entirely assimilated influence in my training always to round off and shadow my outlines i hate them hard i would sacrifice detail to modelling always and the baileys it seemed to me loved a world as flat and metallic as sydney cooper's cows if they had the universe in hand i know they would take down all the trees and put up stamped tin-green shades and sunlight accumulators altiora thought trees hopelessly irregular and sea cliffs a great mistake I got things clearer as time went on. Though it was an Hegelian mess of which I had partaken at Codger's Table by way of a philosophical training, my sympathies have always been pragmatist. I belong almost by nature to that school of pragmatism that, following the medieval nominalists, bases itself upon a denial of the reality of classes and of the validity of general laws. The Baileys classified everything. They were, in the scholastic sense, which so oddly contradicts the modern use of the world, realists. They believed classes were real and independent of their individuals. This is the common habit of all so-called educated people who have no metaphysical aptitude and no metaphysical training. It leads them to a progressive misunderstanding of the world. It was a favourite trick of Altiora's to speak of everybody as a type. She saw men as samples moving. Her dining room became a chamber of representatives. It gave a tremendously scientific air to many of their generalisations, using scientific in its 19th century uncritical Herbert Spencer sense, an air that only began to disappear when you thought them over again in terms of actuality, and the people one knew. At the Baileys, one always seemed to be getting one's hands on the very strings that guided the world. You heard legislation projected to affect this type and that. Statistics marched by you with sin and shame, and injustice and misery, reduced to quite manageable percentages. You found men who were to frame or amend bills in grave and intimate exchange with Baileys omniscience. You heard Altiora canvassing approaching resignations and possible appointments that might make or mar a revolution in administrative methods, and doing it with a vigorous directness that manifestly swayed the decision. And you felt you were in a sort of signal box with levers all about you, and the world outside there albeit a little dark and mysterious beyond the window running on its lines in ready obedience to these unhesitating lights true and steady to trim termini and then with all this administrative fizzle this pseudo-scientific administrative chatter dying away in your head out you went into the limitless grimy chaos of london streets and squares roads and avenues lined with teeming houses each larger than the chambers street house and at least equally alive you saw the chaotic clamour of hoardings the jumble of traffic the coming and going of mysterious myriads you heard the rumble of traffic like the noise of a torrent a vague incessant murmur of cries and voices wanton crimes and accidents bawled at you from the placards imperative unaccountable fashions swaggered triumphant in dazzling windows of the shops and you found yourself swaying back to the opposite conviction that the huge formless spirit of the world it was that held the strings and danced the puppets on the bailey stage under the lamps you were jostled by people like my Staffordshire uncle out for a spree. You saw shy youths conversing with prostitutes. You passed young lovers pairing with an entire disregard of the social suitability of the types they might blend or create. You saw men leaning drunken against lampposts whom you knew for the type that will charge with fixed bayonets into the face of death and you found yourself unable to imagine Little Bailey achieving either drunkenness or the careless defiance of annihilation. You realised that quite a lot of types were underrepresented in Chambers Street, that feral and obscure and altogether monstrous forces must be at work, as yet altogether unassimilated by those neat administrative reorganisations. End of chapter 6, section 1